Right, welcome everybody to uh, another edition of uh, Legal Tech Week, our weekly roundtable of uh, legal tech journalists in which we uh, discuss and dissect the top stories in legal tech and innovation from the past week. This is Bob. I am Bob Ambrogi. I am uh, the author of the blog Law Sites and host of the podcast Law Next. And our panelists this week, as you see before you, are, uh, I'll, I'll go from my uh, left to right here. Victoria, you want to start? Hey, hey, everyone. This is Victoria Hutchins. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News, which is a publication owned by ALM. I cover the law and technology, cybersecurity, both domestic and international. And Molly? Molly McDonough. I'm a legal affairs journalist and a media strategist based in the Chicago area. All right, Nikki. I am Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. I write about legal tech for a number of different outlets, <clears throat> including ABA Journal, Above the Law, uh, Daily Record, and uh, the My Case blog, among others. Zach. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News. Uh, nice to be back this week, though last week this time I was on a hammock and a lake in northern Minnesota, so I do wish I was still there as much as I love you all. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And Victor, how about you? Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor with the APA Journal. I handle the business of law section, which also intersects with technology. And like I said, usually say I do not speak for the ABA or the APA journal. And if anyone has a problem with anything I say, I don't speak for myself either. All right. So, uh, so with uh, with due deference to the fact that Nikki Black works in my case and not Cleo, I I, I think I want to you know sort of one of the uh, probably. Uh, uh, most notable uh, events of the past week has been the Clio Cloud Conference, and I know a number of us on this call have been have been there, at, at least for part of it. Uh, and uh, you know, we've talked a number of times on this show about the challenges of staging a virtual conference and some of the, you know, highlights and, and lowlights that we've seen so far in some of the virtual conferences. Uh, and uh, as we were all just saying a moment ago, th this one had a had a couple of technical glitches, uh, but I thought overall, I thought they did a pretty good job with it. And I, I thought that what was interesting to me was um, that there was um, uh, an element to it that that actually felt like it recaptured a little bit of the live conference. Uh, and uh, I thought, actually, I'm going to read somebody's tweet that I don't even know this person, but I, I saw somebody tweet this out earlier today where they said, uh, uh, kudos on combining practical information and innovation with a deep, profoundly provocative human side as well. And I, I think that kind of well captures what, what happened this week, especially with some of the speakers that they had. But uh, wonder, uh, wonder what you guys all thought. I mean, I, I did think that it lost quite a bit by not, you know, by, by being in the virtual format. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I think I've, I've gone to, I think, four or five uh, clear conferences. And, you know, I mean, like, like I said before, it was like the social aspect was always a big deal, uh, a big selling point, a big feature of the clear cloud conferences. And, and, and there was still some interactions, some, some ways to interact with people and whatnot, but it, it still felt different, I guess. Um, but that being said, I did. I was quite impressed with um, the diversity of speakers that they had. Um, not just focusing on, you know, your typical okay, you know, Clio stuff or your typical innovation stuff, your typical that. You know, they had, you know, I mean, just Ben, ben Crumb speaking. I mean, and they, they, they've done this before. Like I did, I think they had Brian Stevenson a couple of years ago. Um, um, so I mean, you know, they they have like, and, and I think they, they've had other. Um, uh, speakers like like not in the civil rights uh, or, 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 or or criminal uh, justice areas, but like you know people from like, all different types of um, you know not even some some not even the law. I think one year they had someone talking about wellness. Some some one year talking about how to deal with stress and stuff. So I, I always appreciated that mix of views and that that and just the diversity of topics. Um, so so content wise, I definitely thought that it was it was one of the stronger conferences. But I did kind of feel like there was it was a little bit. I mean, it was just, it just felt different because of the fact that it was yeah. virtual, but yeah. I don't think there's anything, anything they really could have done about that. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I, I, I agree with Victor on the, there, you, there are parts of in-person you can't do. I think this is for sure the best uh, virtual conference I've attended this year. Um, I do think they, they still brought the energy and the uh, production value, despite the, some of the glitches. Um, one of the things that I had a conversation on Twitter with Sarah Glassmeyer about is that um, the chat was super active and the Q&A was super active. And what I liked about both is that on the moderated Q&A, um, a lot of lawyers would answer could, because you could thread your answers in the moderated Q&A. Uh, people would really offer helpful answers to questions um, from the lawyers. And then those questions then would be asked uh, to the speakers during the, during the um, second phase of their, of their presentations. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I thought for the most part, except for once when there was somebody who was just really upset that um, Ben Crump was speaking. Um, was other than that, the, the conversations were really positive and lively and lots of good back and forth and just kind of fun to see things you don't see at a conference, which is hellos and what's the weather like um, all across around the world, uh, including, I don't know if this is true, but um, I didn't have a chance to look it up, but it's snowing in Minnesota. So. <laughs> yep. Well, we, yeah, we have somebody here who can attest to that. <laughs> um, yes, it did snow this morning. I was in the middle of a call. I looked outside and it was coming down hard and got very confused. Um, so that's fun. Um, but one thing kind of to your point, Molly, that I wanted to say, though, is I feel like we talk a lot about the negatives of virtual conferences and not being able to meet in person. And obviously you're losing a lot. But I do find it interesting some of the positives that come with it, too, of having that conversation kind of while somebody else is speaking. So you're able to respond and ask questions and get answers to your questions right away. I know I've been to a lot of live conferences that have tried to use Slido or raise your hand if you've had this problem and take a poll of the room, but even that feels a little bit impersonal. But being able to have that direct feedback and direct response to your questions, like you're able to have in a chat format, um, I think is really cool and something that I'd like to see a lot more people that are doing these virtual conferences take advantage of. Yep. Victoria, what did you think? I know you didn't see as, as much of it probably, but you, you were there for parts of it. Yeah, I definitely thought there was um, there were some like interesting discussions going on. Um, it did like a uh, Clio conference back in 2018 was the first legal tech conference that I ever went to. And it was definitely, I think like if that had to be the first one that you're introduced to, that's the one because it's so interactive. Um, it's a difference. It's a difference between like legal week where it's more geared towards big law. And I think Clio tries to go for a more personal um, interactions with um, that type of conference. And even like an ABA, the ABA's um, uh, conference, that even feels a little bit different, but Clio, they definitely try to have like a personable, personable, um, I guess where you could say vibe to it. And I think they try to bring that into a virtual setting with like the roots. And I think they had like Iron Chef, like cooking and like um, you can do um, gym work, uh, workout session with them as well, but you kind of missed that, but they kept it they still kept kind of like the content of like you can learn about Clio and you can also learn about how improving your law firm either through Clio products or just um, be more data driven or um, I, I um, wrote about the Brian Parker uh, session where he talked about data um, fostering more diversity in law firms and kind of just like the tools that you can use to kind of um, to solve this challenge that uh, the legal industry has been struggling with for decades. So I think they definitely have the content there. It's just kind of like you can't, it's still something kind of missing when you've actually been to the real thing. But I saw that they were trying and I do think it's kind of like something these um, conferences should take in the mind of saying like, let's make this a little bit different and not just try to like have a bunch of Zoom uh, panels. Yeah, I mean, I, I in some ways I felt, uh, you know, maybe this is a little bit too, well, not exactly to the point Zach was making about the, the conversations, but in some ways having the, the keynotes uh, right there on your screen made them almost feel a little more intimate than they might feel than when you're seeing them up on a big screen. I mean, the, the, the Ben Crump uh, talk, both the Ben Crump talk uh, and Seth Godin today, I felt, I, you know, I almost felt like you were sitting in a room with them, uh, just having, a, having, just listening to them talk anyway, and then during the Q&A, having a conversation with them. 
So that was pretty good. I mean, that, that could be true of, you know, of any, that's not, nothing unique to the Clio conference, but uh, part of it went to, went to, was a testament to the quality of the speakers, I think. Um, well, I mean, there's just like I, like I was saying a little earlier, there's no beating having um, a, a personal con concert either um, by uh, Ben Harper in your home uh, yeah. <laughs> with a with a great backdrop they had. That, I mean, I just I think they brought the cool factor. Um, and then I just want to point out something that um, Mark Palmer uh, pointed to in the in the um, comments to us that um, they also had closed captioning. <clears throat> and I saw a lot of appreciation for that um, in the comments too. Uh, and I thought that I thought that was really good, um, high quality. And they adjusted because um, when Bill Henderson was speaking, uh, they had uh, he had really detailed slides, and the closed captions were on top of the slides. And so they moved. There was a there was a, a, a real time feedback in the comments and in the chat, and they moved the closed captioning off to the side so you could see Bill's slides. So, and, and they also were able to then respond about what things they could collect and make available um, on the website afterwards because everybody wanted Bill's slides and everybody wanted, a bunch of people wanted Brian Parker's slides too. So, so not to dwell too much on the, on the Clio Cloud Conference, but uh, Molly, I, speaking of Bill's uh, presentation on, on the Main Street Lawyer, I know that that was something that you had indicated you wanted to kind of uh, talk a little bit more about it as part of this this program. I mean, I, I'm really sorry I missed that, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that. Yeah, I thought you know, um, uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I've heard Bill speak, and I've been involved with um, the Paradigm Shift series he did at the ABA Journal uh, for many years, and and he was in our first class of Legal Rebels. Um, so I feel like I've I've um, been pretty familiar with Bill's work. This is the first time I've re I've seen him really focus on Main Street lawyers, so the solo small firm uh, lawyers that work with people, as he said, work um, with people and provide a service rather than work with uh, work for corporations or on behalf of corporations. So it was it was a really interesting, and he's he's done that to an extent uh, with some of his labor data, uh, with what lawyers earn and and things like that. But he really focused in on um, the value the the um, what's happened to the legal profession for the small firm lawyer, um, you know, the influence of advertising and um, storefront practices uh, with uh, Jacoby and Myers and and other and Hyatt Legal that um, um, that that developed and then then um, um, basically went away during the recession yeah. and um, or folded into other companies, but. Um, I thought it. I thought it was really instructive. It was a little frightening, I think, for some of the people <laughs> listening, um, because it seemed to be like, uh, "Oh, the world is changing. You're not going to be um, able to do anything you think you're successful in the way you think you're going to be successful." And it's so that was a little jarring. Um, but what he was really saying is that you can have a successful practice, and you can, you should be able to be able. You should be able to serve so many more people, but you're going to have to bring in other talents into your, um, your practice ecosystem. You're, you can't be the expert in everything, and you're going to need to bring in um, a, you know, a team of people who can help you better serve your clients at scale. And one of the points he made is that the dynamic of lawyering has shifted from one to one um, to one to many. And the, that shift has happened in consumer culture, um, but it hasn't really happened yet um, effectively in legal because um, we still don't have the skill set or the billing options um, that would make that, that um, one to many uh, most effective. Interesting. Was anybody else on that session or had any thoughts on what Molly just said or? Um, Victor, last thing before we move off, Cleo Cloud, Victoria, you also uh, sat in on a couple sessions and, and uh, what, what, did, what did you see that interested you there? Oh, I also, um, I covered the Future of Virtual Courts panel discussion and it featured uh, a Michigan Supreme Court Chief Supreme Court Chief Justice and a representative from Canada's first like online 
uh, court tribunal, I forget the exact title, um, and also a um, lawyer, uh, Greenberg and Cherick, a shareholder lawyer. And they were talking about the future of virtual courts and will it continue after COVID-19 um, subsides? And they said definitely. Maybe not at the school level that we see now, but kind of like the uh, efficiencies and benefits that it provides like access to justice that you'll see you'll you'll still continue to see like online court proceedings and I thought it was interesting that the woman from uh, the Canada online Tribune um, Sharon Salter Sharon Shelter, yes. Um, she mentioned that um, online shouldn't be the only alternative for court proceedings. You should also provide um, telephone um, even in-person, I think she said telephone and online uh, proceedings. So everyone's able to participate and kind of like take away that stigma, especially if you don't have a lawyer with you to actually be able to um, proceed in court legal proceedings and kind of like why that will continue in the Michigan State Supreme Court justice. She even mentioned that she did hear some people complaining about like, hey, I don't like this. Let's go back to how things were. But she said it's kind of like they should get um, that judges aren't going to stop their acceleration of technology. They're going to continue it. And that's kind of interesting. I've heard other courts, even with state budget cuts, they're saying that they're not really looking to take away from the technology, especially if they have less um, support staff. They're looking to actually automate more so they can get more, they can continue to get work done with less people. So I think it'll be something interesting to watch. And of course, some lawyers are against it, but I think it will be like after 2020, courts won't necessarily look the same like they were, were in early 2020. Yeah, I only caught a couple minutes of their talk and I had to switch to something else. But I, the part I caught where she was talking about the idea that it's, you know, it's nice to put to make courts virtual, but that's, that, you don't just stop there. You can't just put a court on Zoom and, you know, think that you've come up with an answer. You, you have to be thinking about the user-centric design and, and doing it in a way that's, that's friendly and, and uh, uh, intuitive to the people who are going to be using that, um, which is uh, something that I don't think a lot of courts have really thought about. So. Well, and the other thing that I, that just really resonated with me, and I've, you know, I've heard Nicole Braddock talk about this a lot too, but um, she really um, hit home the point for me that um, what happens with a lot of technology development and service oriented development is that designers and lawyers um, and technologists come in, they have identified a problem or a service that needs to be delivered in a new way and they create this product and they get it to this beta version and then they bring in the public. And her, her point is you have to start with the public helping identify the problem and the service and developing that technology and delivery all along the way. And that's the only way it'll be truly accessible um, is if you start to bring in those, those stakeholders. And I, I had the um, opportunity to work with Pro Bono Net earlier this year and it's really interesting to see how some of the legal services um, organizations work do that work bring in the stakeholders so early on into the process and make them part of help them they're part of the solution um, they're the, the population that's being served so they should be part of identifying and developing the solutions I don't know I, I, I hate to be the skeptic but I just feel like it would just be the easiest thing in the world for everyone like once once this crisis passes everyone just be like, all right let's go back and do things the way we used to you know it's so much, so much of, so much of the litigation system. It's, it's, it's been ingrained in so many lawyers and, and, and why not just that you have to show up, you have to be there, you know, you personally serve people or you, you know, you, you know, being confronted in a courtroom with, with, with your, with your accusers and with the witnesses, it just, there's so much, so much premium is put on that. Like, I just feel like just, just then turning on a dime and being like, okay, well now we're going to do teleconferences. Now we're going to do video conferences. Now we're going to do all that other stuff. I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I feel like it would just be very, very easy for, for, for people to just fall back into, into comfortable habits. And, and, and maybe, you know, maybe it won't happen. I mean, you know, I think, I think it'd be interesting to, to, to see if, if there really is like a huge, you know, if, 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 you know, once we get more data and we get more, we get more, um, you know, recording and more uh, information about, you know, just, you know, how much, you know, how much more accessible technology makes the court, you know, the, the justice system, how, how much money we save, how much, how many more people we can serve and what kind of stuff that, then, you know, maybe, maybe I could see that, but, 
otherwise I, I just feel like it would just be it would just be easy just press the reset button and just go back to, to how things were I definitely get that. But one thing that does give me a little bit of heart and with the caveat that if you're speaking at a tech conference is probably a self-selecting sample, but a lot of the people who are coming out in favor of this are the jurists themselves. We see a lot of judges, not only from Michigan, but obviously Utah and other places that are saying, yeah, we see in our courtrooms how many people are coming in without lawyers, how tough it is to have access to justice. We don't know how exactly things are going to change, but we recognize that there needs to be some sort of change here. And as we saw in Utah, as long as you have a few judge champions, it can go a lot further than maybe necessarily just one individual individual lawyer who's trying to affect change themselves. So and, and I'll, I'll, well, I was just going to add to that, Zach, that the other part of that is that, so I would say that the observation in Michigan um, is that rather than a few judge champions, now there's just a few holdouts. So I think that switch has been flipped. Um, and then also it's worth noting that in Michigan, one of the reasons they were able to um, adapt so quickly is because they already saw this as a way forward. So they already had Zoom licenses for their entire judiciary because it's a giant state and their court system needed to be able to serve parts of the state that were, are really hard to get to. And so they were you know, already doing this um, dispute resolution, these du dispute resolution portals and uh, online courts um, as part of their plans before the pandemic. So I think that now that it's, you know, they had to test that much more quickly than they thought they would have to. <laughs> but now that they've done it, I don't see them going back. Well, just from the access to justice angle, um, I, I don't, I read an article this morning, I don't know where I saw it. It was a legal publication about access to justice and online court systems. And what interested me was what they said uh, was that this uh, theory that online um, uh, court attendance and um, conducting court online will forward access to justice may be flawed because actually, just as we're seeing with online schooling, the people that truly are um, uh, it's the lowest socioeconomic people at the bottom of the um, socioeconomic uh, ladder that are getting left behind because they don't have the technology to, they don't have the laptops, you know, they don't have the phones that have, that are up to date so that they can, um, you know, so that you can have Zoom conferences on the phones or they don't own laptops. And so I think that's a little bit of a wrinkle in this access to justice theory in terms of online courts, at least. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a major issue, and, and Victoria was in that session with Shannon Salter, and that's the main reason she was talking about having, you can't just have it all online. You have to have a mix of online, in-person, telephone, by mail, um, and, and then you have to be able to make that accessible. Um, and accessible means also communicating that it's available in people's language, in plain language. I mean, there are lots of layers to this. But yeah, I agree. I mean, that the technology gap is huge uh, um, for anyone who's justice involved. So Nikki, we, uh, you, you've uh, been at a, at a disadvantage not having been at any of the Clio conference this week, but uh, what, what's, you've, you, I know a, lot, a number of stories interested you this week. What are you, what are you, <laughs> what's, at, what's at the top of your list this week? Well, a good segue is speaking of Michigan. Um, the one that interested me the most was an article that I wrote for the Daily Record about uh, um, an ethics opinion I missed initially. I believe it was from February, although I could be confusing it with another, but it was from earlier this year where Michigan adopted um, the duty of technology confidence. That uh, was not necessarily what stood out to me. What stood out to me was um, that it adopted the ADA's secure, secure communication concepts from opinion um, 477. I had thought that the DC, or uh, not DC, um, that uh, the Pennsylvania bar was the first one to do so when they issued um, opinion, uh, an opinion right after the pandemic hit in April. Right. They'd issued an opinion on uh, the ethics of remote working and how to work remotely, securely, and ethically. And they adopted uh, opinion 477. And just for a point of reference for those listening, if you're not familiar, what ABA's 470, Opinion 477 essentially said, um, and this came out two years ago, was that 
uh, email is no longer necessarily a secure way to communicate about confidential client information. And they created a, um, a test in terms of determining how should you communicate with your clients. They suggested on a case-by-case -case basis, you need to assess the sensitivity of the information you're going to be sharing. And if it is particularly sensitive, you need to find an encrypted method of communication for that, which would be encrypted email or secure client portal built into law practice management software or something like that. Um, and I always advise when I write about it, um, rather than go through this whole song and dance on a case-by-case -case basis, find an encrypted way to communicate from here on out because I believe that um, other, you know, other jurisdictions were gonna start adopting this rule because the ABA's ethics opinions are advisory. And I thought that Pennsylvania was the first one to do it when I read that in April and I was super stoked about it. But then lo and behold, I discovered this Michigan opinion that I'd missed writing about. I try to write about all the um, tech competence opinions as they come down. And um, I wrote about that one. And as I was reading it and writing about it, I stumbled upon the fact that they had also adopted that. So I was super excited about that because I think that especially now that we're all working remotely and that's probably going to be going on um, on and off in different jurisdictions as there surges, that lawyers need to understand that email is not inherently secure. It's actually not secure. It's like a postcard written in pencil going through the post office and that they need to make sure that they're using some sort of secure communication, especially um, now when, because there's so much remote working, the number of cyber attacks seems to be increasing. Um, I just had a bunch of notifications from a couple of different, different software programs I run that all sorts of my passwords have um, a whole bunch of accounts, a lot of shopping or whatever, have been hacked um, or have been breached, that there is a breach and I have to change passwords. And they're from, they run the gamut, but there's about 15 of them that over the last three or four days were exposed in different hacks, um, different breaches. So, and there've been articles out there to talk about how these breaches are happening with increasing frequency. And so as a result, I think lawyers do need to be cautious and find some encrypted way to communicate, especially now that more jurisdictions are adopting that. And Michigan, you know, was the most recent one and I was excited about it. So I think that was really the most noteworthy thing that I have come across. The other things were interesting, like judges communicating on social media about um, hitting on people on social media in their robes. Um, another one was a judge inadvertently sending all the bar results to every, everyone. Dean, the law school dean, yeah. Yeah, Dean, oh, sorry, Dean to all the- Former ABA students. president. <laughs> yeah. So there's been a lot of email and social media flubs, which caught my eye, but in terms of uh, something that was noteworthy, I really thought the Michigan opinion, since it was the second one, even though it predated the, um, the uh, Pennsylvania one. So that's what yeah, well, I, I, I follow that closely too. And I did not know about the Michigan opinion either. And, and now you really messed me up because I just submitted a, uh, a, a presentation for another <laughs> virtual conference in which I said, here are all the opinions on uh, duty of tech health. And uh, I didn't have that one in there. So yeah, I'll um, post it. Initially it was behind a paywall, um, but another, my daily record articles are syndicated nationally and then picked up by other um, gatehouse media publications. And one of them picked it up. So I'll, um, post that in a minute once I locate it into the yeah. chat. But, you know, it, it is really, that ABA opinion is really interesting and both the Pennsylvania and, and Michigan and, and other opinions that have talked about this, uh, 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 at least broadly in terms of the lawyer's duty to protect, uh, you know, email and other uh, 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 electronic communications with clients. Uh, it continues to be the fact uh, from from my experience that most lawyers are not doing that uh, and they are not using uh, any kind of encryption. They don't even know how to use encryption. Uh, I often go to when, you know, usually when I speak uh, at a group, I'll, I'll usually ask the room, how many people in this room know how to encrypt an email? And if you see a, a few hands go up, uh, it's, it's a good day. Um, so this is a really serious problem, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, ethics uh, these ethics opinions will at least spur lawyers to be a little bit more thoughtful about this. Yeah, I, I think I, it's interesting. Well, do you think that? Um, I, I mean, I think this is a major issue, especially for small and mid-sized firms. I, I would be surprised if any large firms don't have encryption requirements and protocols. Um, but this is, it's a ma it has to be a massive issue for, for small firms that are, you know, um, you know, penny pinching and trying to figure out, you know, what the best technology is and, and completely confused by the market and the choices. 
That, I mean, that's true. Probably that's probably true. But then again, uh, you know, the the large firms have all sorts of their own uh, tech competence issues all the time. Uh, you know, the the number of cases involving large firms flubbing redactions of of documents filed in federal court are are becoming. Uh, too many to count. We saw, you know, Seifarth just, what, was it this week when they got uh, the, the victim of a ransomware attack? I mean, those are, those are tough. I'm not sure that's necessarily a lawyer tech competence issue, but it's certainly a tech training and preparedness issue. Um, so. Yeah, that's why I think one thing that may be important moving forward for a lot of people to think about is not even, or just making it as easy as humanly possible, just not giving other options. Um, it's not the same as email, but related, I was talking with somebody about virtual desktops and trying to keep them behind a firewall, making sure everything is safe. And he made the point, yeah, just make it look like a regular desktop. And that's what you log into automatically. If you don't give any other options, then it's very easy to make sure everything is encrypted. So I feel like for a lot of law firms, that may be the answer is, I think somebody put ProtonMail uh, in the chat there, make that your only email source. And if you do that, then it would make life a lot easier. Colin, I mean, I, I wrote an article in June for the ABA Journal um, I, I've been trying to, as the pandemic hit, focus my articles on tools lawyers can use that'll help them during the pandemic. And so I wrote one on secure communication tools for lawyers that talked about the ABA 477 opinion and then the different options that are out there. But I, I mean, I agree with you, Zach, that they need to, I think lawyers need to choose some sort of secure option that's a good fit for their firm's needs. And, you know, my personal opinion, and I'm biased, I'll admit it, but I think that the client portals that are built into the practice management software programs are oftentimes the simplest and easiest way to securely communicate. You have all your information in one place in that software program and you're, um, you let your clients know at the very start, no matter what type of secure communication tool you're using, uh, you know, I recommend that they just notify them at the time of engagement and say, this is how we're gonna communicate because we wanna make sure to, that we're gonna protect your information. Yes, it's another login, but you know how to do, you know, you do this with your doctor, you do this with your bank, and you need to do it with your lawyer because this is some of the most secure and important uh, confidential information and it needs to be protected. So as long as you let them know upfront, whatever the method's gonna be, um, client portal, the what you just mentioned, or some sort of encrypted email, you know, you let them know upfront, they create their um, login once, and then they just know that's how they communicate with you. And, once you do that, I think clients get over that bump. Some lawyers object to it because I think the clients don't like it, but I think it's super important and lawyers need to be, this needs to really be for, forefront for a lot of lawyers in terms of working remotely right now. Yep. Um, Zach, what did you have this week? Yeah, um, my one for this week was yesterday, uh, e-discovery company Disco announced that they had raised 60 million. Uh, that is on top of the 80 plus million that they had announced in early 2019. So 140, more than 140 million in the past like 18 months or so. Um, we've talked a lot about the growth of another wave of e-discovery companies, particularly those that are cloud-centric, Disco being one of the main people in that. But what really stood out to me when I talked to them this week was, A, just how much of that $60 million they're going to be pouring into sales. They said that they're going to be doubling their sales staff in North America, growing in Asia for the first time, growing in Europe, um, the internationalization of this all but B, how they also plan on growing their partner channels, um, which sounds very relativity-esque to me. Um, there are a lot of very large e-discovery companies that do a lot of the services arm, like your Concilio, like your Epic, but haven't been that many at scale that have been very software-oriented like Relativity is, but that is exactly what Disco is doing and looking to resell through partner channels in a similar way and build up that ecosystem. Um, so especially with this increased funding, it seems like they're going for the throat a little bit and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It's because especially they're cloud native, whether they are able to take on everything that Relativity is doing with Relativity One. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. They, uh, you know, the, um, it, in their, 
press release announcing this, they they alluded to the idea that they want to become the Salesforce of, of legal. Uh, and uh, I was looking back on, on my blog for how many times people have said to me they want to become the Salesforce of, of legal. And I'm realizing if I, you know, if I charge like $10 every time somebody said that, I, I could be rich by now. But uh, uh, I mean, it, it is it is interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, relativity does re remain the... Uh, the, the the big player on the block and um, but I, I do feel that uh, I do wonder to what extent in particular the pandemic has maybe shifted that whole equation a little bit because relativity one um, you know some people haven't been entirely happy with it and uh, which is their cloud version and and uh, some of it may be opening a door for some of these other other companies and yeah, I know. I, yeah. When I talked with him, that's basically what um, I talked to the COO of Disco, and that's what he said: is they very publicly had some layoffs in the early pandemic, and there was a downswing. But then, as soon as that initial wave was over, they saw a lot of people saying, "Oh, we recognize that the cloud is pretty much a thing that we have to go to now," and that upswing that happened pretty rapidly for them. So that's why right now, even so soon after their last funding round, they felt that they pretty much had to be aggressive to try and take advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was talking yesterday to somebody from Case Point who was saying basically the same thing. I mean, they had a, they've had a, the year has been good for them in, in, in terms of uh, business uh, as bad as it's been in other ways, but um, definitely driving uh, people to, to more cloud-based software all across the board. Well, so Zach, you mentioned in your email that, sorry, Molly. Um, no, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so Zach, I, I think you mentioned in your email and I, you know, I saw that in the article just now, like this comes right after they cut a bunch of people or they, 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 they laid off people. I, I mean, you know, not, 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 you know, not being one to opine on someone's business practices and, or business model. And, you know, maybe there's a legitimate reason for that. I mean, did you, did you get, you know, and, and, and do you have any insight into, into that? Like, I mean, you know, one's not necessarily related to the other, obviously, but it is a bad look for a company to do that. Um, it is. It certainly is. Um, and I know they weren't the only e-discovery company to be cutting people at that time. And I've heard off the record that it's still not over for some e-discovery companies that are having cuts right now. Um, they didn't really go into that much, understandably, when I talked to them. I did ask. And that's basically the answer they gave me is, by the end of the first half of the year, their revenues were close to on target because of that upswing. Um, so that's why they felt they had to be aggressive. But as to obviously what that means for the people that were cut, I don't have many answers there. Um, Victor, what about you? Would you have what got your attention this week? Oh yeah, like, um... I saw that uh, that China is starting a, a digital uh, digital yuan, yuan trial by giving uh, you know I guess the equivalent of thirty dollars in American dollars to uh, to fifty thousand people in the country and and you know it's it's just their way of trying to well the official party line is just a way of of, of of trying to experiment with this digital currency because you know they they want to be the tech leaders going forward on 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 so many things and you've seen it with some of the DNA tracking that they've done and some of the co the contact tracing and some other things and the social scores and, and things like that. But of course the skeptic, the skeptical way of looking at it is, 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 is another way to like, just, just track what people are doing and to see how they're spending their money and to, to be able to trace things and whatnot. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see, to see how it goes. I mean, just, um, you know, I, I, I haven't been following it too closely, but I mean, you know, just kind of looking at some of the things that China has been doing over the last like year or two, it, it does seem as if they're, they're definitely kind of trying to establish themselves as like the tech leaders going forward. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the flip side of that is that it's easier to kind of watch what everybody's doing when you have so much technology being centralized within the government and having them control everything. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's just, you know, this just, this just seems to be at the latest, um, the latest uh, trend in that, but, you know, I mean, but, but if, if, you know, if, if if the if the trial goes well and the, and, and the currency does prove to be stable and and it is like a way to kind of you know give them an advantage over other countries, it'd be interesting to see how that how that how that works going forward, especially you know seeing how the relation between you know the United States and China with the with the dollar depreciations and whatnot. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Wait and see if it drives up the price of my Bitcoin. Uh. <laughs> 
<laughs> and Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra, it's still going. I saw like an announcement with some like EU regulator saying like, okay, I think it was something like we need to add rules for this type of um, cryptocurrency. So Libra, uh, Facebook, Libra is still going through the ringer. So it'd be, and I think Mark Zuckerberg even mentioned like China is building cryptocurrency and like the United States, states can't be behind. So it kind of be interesting as like China, their cryptocurrency become, they start leveraging that more. Will that have any impact on like Facebook and Libra? Like US regulators and everyone else say they have an issue with it, but well, if China um, turns out like a cryptocurrency, could that impact like Libra at all? So that'd be interesting to watch too. So that, that could be a transition to a story I did this week, uh, which has to do with the intersection of, of uh, I guess, blockchain and law, which is this uh, legal or aid uh, that was announced this week. Uh, le you know, legal or is this, uh, it's an international company, but based in Australia that provides, I mean, their, their core platform is this communications uh, and calendaring platform for lawyers to meet with clients. Uh, but they, they've launched this project, Legal Array, that they've been talking about for a couple of years, uh, which is essentially an attempt to crowdfund uh, legal help for uh, legal aid purposes and, and, uh, and particularly social justice purposes. Uh, and, and, and the blockchain connection is that uh, all of these uh, uh, contributions or, or donations, it's like, it's sort of like a GoFundMe or something. People can go in and, and fund, uh, you know, pick and choose uh, social justice or legal aid projects and, uh, and fund them. But uh, all of the uh, donations will be tracked through a blockchain ledger so as to uh, ensure uh, that they, the money is, is going, is actually going to a legal case as opposed to, uh, you know, buying your lawyer a Ferrari or, or, or something like that, as, as has happened with a couple of these uh, crowdfunded uh, uh, justice matters in, in the past. It's, it's later come out that the money that people put in didn't necessarily go to legal expenses at all. Uh, so it's an interesting idea. And they actually have this, you know, much bigger idea of kind of building out this whole uh, legal aid uh, platform that will uh, facilitate um, you know, delivering, uh, uh, connecting those in need of legal help with uh, lawyers willing to provide uh, legal help on a, on a really global basis. Uh, and they've already got some pretty big partners in it, uh, namely uh, Lex Mundi's uh, Pro Bono Foundation, which is, a, you know, an international network of, of law firms. Uh, and also the uh, Neighborhood Legal Services of Los Angeles County, which is one of the largest uh, legal services offices in California. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Any it thoughts is on definitely, that? Or? I feel like the question with that is always a matter of adoption though. So yeah. I, I hadn't read that article of yours. I, I'm gonna go check it out though, because that is interesting. Um, I know that there's been some more business oriented um, cases where people have tried to do that on a grander scale more outside of just legal. Um, I know that there was one that was trying to um, essentially build water wells in Africa, then using blockchain as a secure method of donation and for collection as well. But the issue that they were having on the back end was in fact that collection and making sure that everything was going smoothly from the blockchain to people who actually needed it. So as long as you have those facilitators like those legal aid organizations, that would solve that problem quite well. It's just a matter of making sure everything is clean. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, that's one of those, uh, it's one of those stay tuned and see, see what happens with it. Uh, but I think it's an interesting idea. Um, the only other one I just wanted to mention real quick, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I had one of yours that um, that this week was so full of packed with news that um, I forgot to put it on my list, Bob, which was the um, the legal tech hub. Yeah, that's what um, I was just going to mention okay. to you. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I just think that's something that's missing in the marketplace is, you know, a, a good solid directory um, and and vetting and way to research uh, software and kind of all one technologies in all one place. So I, I thought that was pretty a pretty interesting development. Yeah, I think that's going to be really interesting. This was started if you if you didn't see the story by uh, by a uh, husband and wife team. Nikki Shaver is the uh, 
Director of Innovation and Knowledge at Paul Hastings. Uh, she is, uh, you know, fairly well recognized as, as an innovative force within the legal profession. She was one of uh, the winners of ILTA's uh, Distinguished Peer Awards uh, this year. She was, she was named Innovative Leader of the Year and her firm was Innovator of the Year. So it's her and her husband, Chris Ford, who's uh, currently uh, the uh, CMO at, at the legal tech company Zero. But they've created this, essentially just tried to come up with a, a single uh, directory of all the commercial legal technology in the world. They're, they're not doing A to J tech uh, or direct to consumer tech, but so it's really focused on, uh, you know, uh, law firms and, and, and corporate legal departments uh, and tech that serves them. But uh, really be, be interesting to see how that develops uh, and, and if they don't lose their sanity trying to keep it current because uh, uh, that, that's gonna be the hard part. And what interested me about it was it seems to be uh, it does not seem to be pay to play, meaning they just seem to be trying to create a directory of legal products rather than only including the ones that pay them to be included. So I think that that can be a valuable resource because sometimes companies that purport to provide a directory don't always disclose that um, it is pay to play. Right. So it's not yeah. It, it will be free to access and free to list, but there will be um, enhanced listings that companies can pay for uh, and they will have, they already have advertising on it. And they, she said they do plan to develop out some other kind of content that they're going to charge for access to. Uh, so they do want to make money it. at it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that may end up changing. It's not like the good old days of, you know, the internet, the wild, wild west in 95 where people just randomly created websites that were directories of stuff just because they wanted to create it. Now it's, everyone's always trying to monetize whatever they're doing, but I guess- Well, even the, the Yellow world. Pages has <laughs> enhanced advertising. So, you know, right. yeah. if anybody yeah. has a Yellow, I actually did get a Yellow Pages book the other day for my, um, for a, a three municipality area. Um, I wow. couldn't believe it landed on my doorstep. Never see. I haven't seen one of those. Yeah, I got one. I got one last year. I was like, "What do you want me to do with this?" Like, <laughs> I, like, I guess I could. I guess I could use it to like, you know, pop open the door or something, or. or just, but, right in the recycling bin, right? <laughs> but I, I, I mean, what? Like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Bob. I, I didn't see that story, but um, um. So like, what? Like, What's the matter like, with you guys? Like, You're not reading my blog all this week. <laughs> no, but so so the enhanced <laughs> so, so the enhanced advertising is it, is it just they would put it at the you they just put it at the very top? Is that is that what it is? Or? Or is it, is uh, the enhanced listing will give them more, uh, uh, the ability to put more into a listing. Uh, it's, I don't think it's going to change. What's really nice about it actually is they've got a lot of uh, uh, granular uh, filtering uh, in terms of searching for different products. So it's not going to change how you appear in search results. It's just going to appear what you can include in your listing. Hmm. Yeah, I could, I could see, I, yeah, I could, I could see that giving people a, a, an advantage, but I guess, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's the internet now, right? I mean, you know, Google puts people yeah. at the very top, you know, um, you know, you know, the yellow pages does yeah. it. So, you know. Yeah. It's like claiming your profile on Avo, except you have to pay for it. Right. Right. And they, and they also plan to have user ratings at some point, which will be interesting uh, because of course, you know, user ratings and advertising don't always mix well. Um, but uh, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, I did read this one, to be fair. And I mean, <laughs> but my response was pretty much what you said at the end. Like, man, I, it'd be cool. Good luck keeping it current. <laughs> There's yeah. so many, especially if the startup scene and how many new companies are coming into the space, um, like almost daily. I feel like it would be a full-time job, quite honestly. Yeah to update something like that. That Well, that's what I was telling them because I, I mean, I started my, uh, I have a supposedly have a directory of legal tech startups on my website, but I, I know that that's out of date and incomplete because I just can't keep up with it. I mean, I, it's enough to try and keep up with the people who message me and say, add me to your list, but then to try and, you know, I, I there's all the others that aren't messaging me and, and that are just coming up every day. Uh, and uh, it's really difficult to keep up with that. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I've been looking at my my email lately, and it's you know, it's like I feel like it's like every thirty seconds or something, I'm getting a new email. It's just getting crazy the the quantity of of stuff that's happening out there. So, actually, within the past two weeks specifically, I've noticed an uptick, yeah. and I don't know why. Um, been slammed, and yeah. it's it seems to be 
a lot of people are jumping in, maybe especially because the pandemic slowed down some plans, but all of those are just getting pushed back into a condensed time frame. maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe we should ask all the PR people out there in the audience, just like send us a weekly summary of their pitches. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Uh, so, um, Bob, I just want to say, like, the, the comment you made about Salesforce um, reminded me of something Seth Godin said uh, this morning during his keynote uh, that uh, that kind of reframed because I remember uh, Jason Teche um, really being just turned off by any time somebody said they have the turbo tax of law uh, for whatever it is. But I thought it was interesting that um, Seth Godin said that that's actually a really great way to um, connect with clients. Um, so I, I so now I have to to make it relatable to something yeah. that's already in the marketplace is yeah. inc is incredibly effective for marketing. Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't I, I, edited, I edited that piece that Jason wrote, and I told him I was like I was like, yeah, you might hate it, but there's a reason why people do it because it works. <laughs> no, and it does. It's descriptive. I mean, you understand right away what they're talking about when they say something like that, as opposed to trying to 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 explain the concept from scratch. Uh, so. No, I, I understand why people do that. It's, it's just funny that, uh, I mean, even within the e-discovery space, there have been a number of companies over the last couple of years that have told me they want to be the sales force of, of, uh, of litigation or whatever. And uh, so enter enterprise, it's always, enter the word enterprise is always in there somewhere too. There's one thing I just realized that I completely neglected mentioning that was super exciting. Victor sent me an email about avatars, like some sort of app that is added to zoom where you can create an avatar but the purpose that they're creating for doesn't make a lot of sense to me it's basically instead of your head floating here on the screen during zoom you can put your avatar there i don't quite understand why you'd want to do that for me it's more this idea of a virtual conference which is like a mini virtual world of sorts you would want to navigate as an avatar rather than just put the an avatar up instead of your head but even so it's like avatars are advancing into the virtual world like the Zoom world, so it was exciting. And I neglected to mention that, but thank you for setting that. You know, I'll put it into the, thanks for supporting that, Victor. I'll put it into the chat. In case yeah. there's anyone else, some lone person out there who's excited about avatars like me. A lip-syncing <laughs> avatar, no less. But yeah, and, and note Molly's, uh, yeah, Zach has written about that, this question of should we get rid of the E in e-discovery? And I'm pretty sure, I, I think in my report on Dis Disco this week, I left the E off. I think it might've been the first time I, I kind of consciously did that. I mean, it, it does, it, it is redundant at this point. It's, it, you know, discovery is tech, but yeah, we can talk about more about that another time. Well, that, and that, I think I've been I, sending yeah. all my- How much well, how much I physical didn't... discovery is there? We can talk about it another time because I know Zach's written about it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Um, any uh, any uh, sort of good of the order or anything else anybody wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, but I just realized I sent all my links to the panelists instead of the like the attendees. So like the articles and I just notified you all instead of I'm trying to okay, really quickly try and share those because they were like about secure communication and that initial article from Michigan. And I may have just lost my opportunity. That's okay. Yeah. I'll bite the bullet on that. <laughs> All right. Did you post oh, well. the, uh, probably that ethics opinion would be the hard. Well, that's, that's actually not posted anywhere yet. Right. Uh, public. Uh, you, you had it. Uh, your story is um, kind of behind a firewall, right? Well, no, it is public. That's the one of the, um, here, let, I'll post that one. One of the, uh, um, another door media news outlet that, posted it publicly so there i just i just shared it all right great <laughs> sorry about that all right uh well we will be back next week same time same place uh and uh i'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about uh, next week given all of our uh, email inboxes and uh thanks to everybody for uh, participating today see you next week